and welcome to Make It, Move It, Sell It. On this podcast, I talk with company leaders about how they're modernizing the business of making, moving, and selling products, and of course, having fun along the way. I'm your host, Adam Honig, the CEO of Spiro.ai. We make amazing AI software for companies in the supply chain, but we're not talking about that today. Instead, today, we're talking to Tim Marvel, who's the Vice President, Business Development and Technology for SEF Energy, an oil field manufacturing company. Welcome to the show, Tim. Thanks, Adam. Appreciate you having me. No, it's great to have you here. Maybe just tell us a little bit about SEF and what you guys are up to. Yeah, so SEF is a private equity-backed company. We're a holding company that holds two companies. One is Downing, which manufactures really wellheads and uh, pressure control equipment for the industry. And then Oso, which is a perforating company. What we focus on is really manufacturing in the United States is one, and two, bringing new technologies to the industry. So we do a lot of innovation. And when I talk about innovation, we talk a lot about patented innovation. So let's start by talking about manufacturing in the United States. I know I feel like there's been more and more of an emphasis for bringing manufacturing back to the U.S. What's your perspective on that? Yeah. So when our company was started, let's see, about eight years ago, really one of the thesis that our CEO had was that we could manufacture and manufacture competitively in the United States. And so we've been executing on that over the past eight years. We started with a smaller company that had in Oklahoma City. And since then, we've grown. We've added about 140,000 square feet of manufacturing facility there. It's a beautiful facility. We're pretty efficient, and we have a great manufacturing vice president that's done a great job there bringing efficiencies to what we're able to do. One of the nice things about the, and you've seen this in the last couple of years, right, with COVID, is that as supply chains have got strung out, right? we're able to respond to our customers quickly because we manufacture right there in Oklahoma City. What do you think is stopping companies from doing more manufacturing in the United States? Is it more of like a labor cost thing or just from a mindset perspective? Well, it's I think labor cost one, but I would say more is, and what we see is labor skills, skill sets. One thing I'll brag on my brother a little bit real quick, but he's a principal in a high school up in Alaska. And they one of the things that they're bringing is, right, they're bringing in vocational training into the high school's. This is something that's, I think, critical is machinist skills and that type of thing. And those are, I think we forget sometimes in our country, right, that those skills are, they're highly valuable and they pay well. I'm happy to report that last night I went to the open house of my son. My son's in eighth grade. He's going to high school next year. And they have a yeah. whole manufacturing program at his, awesome. at his high school. I was, and they've got like local companies they work with and teach things. And they've got 3D printers and all kinds of great stuff over there. We need more of that. That's good. Yeah. So you're focused on manufacturing in the U.S. Tell me a little bit about the thinking around automation in the factory then. Is that a big focus for the organization? Where we really automate is out on what we do a lot around frac sites. So we do a lot of automation on the frac site. So if you think of a frac site, right, when you're fracturing an oil well, if you think of that as a manufacturing site, which it really is, we are automating a lot on that location. So from job to job to job, we're automating the functions around that and pulling people out of what is danger zones. That's where a lot of more of the automation comes in, more so than in our manufacturing, although we have a lot of automated equipment. And do you provide the equipment that does the fracking, or you guys are actually like setting up the fracking situation yourselves? Well, what I'd tell you is there's three systems to think about that when you come out to a frac site, right? Your pumps, you have your wire line, and then you have these surface systems. And so we provide the surface systems. So the operator, the oil company, right, comes out, they hire different companies to do these different services. So we provide 
one suite of those services out there. Gotcha. And so going back to the manufacturing in the United States, do you feel like you're seeing a trend of companies following you guys in that expanding manufacturing in the United States? Some. Yeah, I, I do think there's a lot more and you hear that in the, a lot of buzz around that, that you see a lot more people coming back and I think that's a good thing for our country. But it seems like from what you were saying that the skill development is a challenge that people are going to run into if they do that. Yeah, I think culturally and skill set wise, right? I think we need to be encouraging our people that, you know, you have two paths, right? You can go to college or you can go get a vocational. They're both worthy and needed skill sets in our country. Yeah. Well, and I know it doesn't have to be either or, right? Because I was up at a one True. of our customers manufacturing plant. They had a whole room full of University of Indiana engineers in there, like yes. fixing all the machines that were on the floor, which were constantly yes. breaking. Yeah. Yeah. You still have to have both. You marry both those together, right? We have some excellent operational people that really understand the operations around whether or not it's manufacturing or, like I said, treating the, man, the uh, frac site, they do an excellent job. And then you marry that with the engineers that can engineer out some of the processes or engineer out some of the problems or the hazards, that type of thing. Well, I talk with a lot of people. I feel like I'm hearing a lot more about people building or expanding facilities in the United States for manufacturing, especially. And I think what you mentioned before about being close to the customer shortening the supply chain so that they're able to get, you know, all the materials and everything that they need locally. It's just who knows what's going to be happening in the Pacific in the future, I think, or on a lot of people's minds. Yeah. I'll tell you another thing that's really nice about marrying your manufacturing with your engineering, right? So we're able to engineer something and then we walk downstairs and we're able to build it. And then our engineers are able to see what the issues are, that type of thing. And so your speed of innovation is much faster when you have manufacturing there versus a, let's say, a six-month supply chain that you make something and six months later it shows up and you realize, oops, I probably should have done this. And now you got to go back to the drawing board, right? So our speed of innovation, which is one of the keys of what we do, marrying manufacturing innovation together really helps us. When people think about oil drilling and fracking, I don't think innovation is the thing that comes to mind. I think they, they think of guys wearing hats and boots and stuff like that. But you're right. I mean, if you look at fracking just in general, like we couldn't do any of that work 20 years ago. That's all brand new technology. Well, especially in the shell. Yeah, shell, you know, being able to frack a non-porous rock and get oil out of it. That is definitely an innovation that the United States has led on. So I'll give you an example on the drilling side, right? So you just get an idea of the technology, but we are drilling down 10,000 feet. So let's say two miles, and then we're going out three miles from the spot you're in. So imagine drilling underneath the city while you're out on a farm. So you drill underneath that city and we can pinpoint within feet of where we want to hit on that wellbore. Let's say a six inch wellbore when you get out there. So there's quite a bit of technology, lots of pressure, lots of temperature. So when you look at the hurdles from an innovation standpoint, you're right up there. And honestly, with what everybody thinks about it, the space, that's a challenging environment, but underground's uh, very challenging. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm trying to like even picture in my mind how that would work. I've got like a, one of those cutaway pictures of the earth with like a drill going underneath the city. It's got to be actually a lot more challenging underground than outer space. If you're in space, I mean, there's nothing to really bump into unless you get pretty far out. That's right. Yeah. It's all the same atmosphere, right? Or the conditions around you, whereas down hole, you are going through all these different formations and then you have caverns and you have water and, and pressures and temperature, geothermal, whatever you name it. We got it. So it's actually pretty fascinating when you get into it. It's so funny. So I spend a lot of time talking with people about software development as well. And people sometimes can't really understand why we have trouble doing estimates for software development. I always explain, well, it's kind of like 
digging a pool in your backyard. Until you start digging, you never know what you're going to hit. Yes. Right? Yes. But in your business, it's literally like the same thing. Yes. We, yeah, we don't know. Well, we don't always know what we're going to hit when we go down hole. And I've worked on different sides of the industry. So on the drilling, there's challenges. And then when we complete the wells, right, to be able to get the oil out of the ground. I think a lot of people think that you just poke a hole in the ground and that oil comes out. Those days ended 100 years ago. So now you have to go down, you have to drill, and then you have to stimulate what they call the rock around you to get the oil and gas out of the hole. I saw you were with Baker Hughes. Was it the start of your career? I did a little bit of work consulting for Baker Hughes at the start of my career, and it was the first time I learned anything about oil drilling, except in like a Bugs Bunny cartoon when he drills a hole and gets some oil. And I think that's the way most people think about it. You know, you just boop put a thing down and kind of there you go. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Tell me a little bit about the innovation side of things. What are some of the innovations that you guys are working on now? I'll talk about a couple of them, but they'll give you a good example. So when we frack a well, we, we actually plug off different zones underneath that. You know, I talked about that being three miles out, you know, right. two, two miles down, three miles out, right? We go down there, we isolate an area, and then we blow holes in the casing. There's a steel pipe down there. We blow holes in that, and then we pump fluid down the hole. And when we do that, it's like at 10,000, 15,000 PSI to fracture all that rock down there. Every time we isolate a certain section of that three miles, we do that, let's say, 80 times. Well, there's transition times on the surface. So in those transition times of all this equipment, right, and you have people in, the, in what's called the red zone where you have, like I said, you have pressurized iron. So I don't know if you ever seen anything that goes off at 10,000 PSI, but it's not a pretty sight. You don't want to be around that. With all that's going on there, we automate a lot of the functions that were going on where it used to take, let's say every time we frack a zone, it would take us 45 minutes to transition to the next zone, to the next zone, to the next zone. We've got that down to about 30 seconds now. And all of that, all of that is through automation, right? So we're automating a lot of the functions, control systems, right? We're using tons of data that's coming in. Um, We're streaming data to the cloud real time that we then use to further optimize what we're doing. We can do remote operations into a frack site. So for instance, we had a time where we had a little issue on site, not related to us, I'll make that clear, where we had to close in a well. We closed it in, it was in Pittsburgh or up in the Northeast area and we closed it in from Dallas. So those are the types of things that we're innovating really around lots of software and control systems that we're bringing into the industry. Gotcha. Are you guys using any AI techniques to be dealing with all that data? Because if you're Capturing all that data, that's something that the AI can really help with. Oh, yeah. We get a lot of calls from our guys around AI. Yes. Yeah. So we do a lot of analysis, a lot of algorithms. We have very high frequency data. So there's things that we can see in that data that people didn't know about before and that we're learning and we're using techniques. We have a, a PhD in signal processing that works a lot with what we do. So when you talk about innovation, this kind of gets exciting, Adam. This is where I get pumped up, right? You talk about the things that we're doing and the data that we're utilizing that people before didn't realize that this stuff was actually happening now whole and what you can see in that data. So it's really exciting. I know it's a little technical, but is there something you can share that maybe a more general audience might be able to understand about the kind of insight that you get from the data? I'll give you a couple of examples. One, we get a lot of uh, perceptions. Hey, that thing takes 20 minutes, right, to do that operation, right? We get these customer complaints. Well, then we go in and we actually disaggregate all that data, bring it down, tear it apart and look at just that function, whatever that is, right, in the mass of all this other data. And then we show them, well, in actuality, yes, we did have one event that was 20 minutes, but out of 310 times that we did this, that was 20 minutes once. The rest of it was, you know, 30 seconds. 
So those types of things change the conversation uh, with the customers. And then the other thing is, okay, that 20 minutes, why did that happen? And what do we need to do to fix that? And one of the things I'll add to that, Adam, is that you know we talk a lot about human workflows versus automated workflows. In our industry, when you have a human workflow, they go through a bunch of procedures, checklists, that type of thing. And remember what I said at the beginning, you are working with a lot of different companies out there. So when something goes wrong uh, with human workflows, what do you get? You know, so you try to find the root cause and everybody does this, you know, they're all pointing at, you know, at each other. And then once they do find a root cause or think they find a root cause, invariably it has to do with they add more checklists, procedures. We got to train better, right? You know, one of the things I always talk around is you can never out-train your problems. I mean, it's just, it's impossible. We then on, you talk about automation, right? If we have an issue, we get one second data. That one second data that's coming in, that's our slower speed data. We get a lot of faster or higher hertz data than that. But that one second data, we can tell exactly what happened. Even if it's on us, we know what happened. We can tell the customer, this is what happened. And then here's the key. We look at that and we engineer it out. And guess what? That problem, whatever that problem was, doesn't happen again. Now, other problems might happen, but that one doesn't happen again. So I'm hearing kind of like a quality control feedback here that you're using the data to spot the problems. And then instead of adding a human solution, use a automation in a, in a way to get rid of that problem. And obviously, there are going to be other problems, but at least that one won't happen again. Yes. Take your data. Take your AI. Take your control systems and work through that problem and get rid of it. It's got to be challenging, though, to be dealing with a number of different companies all at the same site. It is. It is. But here's the deal. So what we've done, we've taken a different approach. Instead of marrying all these surface systems together that don't talk to each other, and the interaction between them is a human being, we've taken all those, we've connected them, interlocked them through one control system. So now we have feedback from every one of those systems. And so we know exactly what's happening in that surface system. That makes sense. So, yeah, so yeah. that that goes a long ways versus what we had traditionally. We have five, six different control systems out there that don't talk to each other that only interact through a human being. So there's no way to get rid of that problem. It doesn't sound like you're a manufacturing company. It sounds like you're a technology company at this point. I mean, you guys are like almost a software company, even. We well, we have a lot of that. Yeah, we are a technology company, and we do a lot around technology. We have some very good PhDs that are in control systems, signal processing. And they do a fantastic job of innovating. I think tying it back to manufacturing, though, I think this is something that the United States has a big advantage in. If the future of manufacturing is really the smart manufacturing or the AI augmented manufacturing, I think we have a lot of, I mean, we might have a shortage of skills in, in some of the areas, but I think in that area we can do pretty well, you know? I agree. I've been very fortunate, you know, like with Baker Hughes worked around the world. I definitely am a believer in the quality of the people that we have and in the innovation that a lot of our people have the uh, ability to think through problems. So let me ask you this. One of the things we've been talking with people about is changing expectations of customers. Somebody coined the phrase, the Amazon effect. Everybody expects you as a business to be as quick to deliver products and finish projects and stuff like that as Amazon often seems to be. Do you feel like customer perceptions are changing in your industry at all? You know, it's interesting. So our industry you know, there's a lot of de-risking, right? You know, when you talk about technology, right? They try to get these processes in place and then they try to do them over and over again, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. Do those processes. So to break into that cycle, you know, it takes a little bit of convincing to to try something like what we're doing, which is completely different than what everybody else does. So we talk a lot about this when you're introducing new technology. And Adam, you probably know this because you're doing the same thing. 
But when you talk around perseverance, grit, it takes a lot to get people to think through and say, oh, you know what? I can do this differently. I don't know if I answered your question exactly, but that's what we see as one of the issues is really driving change to what's traditionally done. No, it's it's actually something that's, you answered a much more interesting question for me, which is, sure, I mean, if you're going to do something different in the drilling industry, how do you get the customer to feel comfortable with that? I mean, there could be catastrophic results if things don't work out the way that they're supposed to, right? I mean, that's got to be a big hurdle to get over. Yes, yes. But, okay, so let's go through what you just said. I think that's really good. So we talk a lot about the risk associated with the old way versus the new way. Mm -hmm. They may have gotten used to some of the risks on the old way, where we have getting rid of a lot of those risks associated with whether or not it's people, error, right, that type of thing. One of the things I talked about earlier, right, we've interlocked these systems together. So Mm -hmm. now if one system has an issue, it alerts the other. And if the condition isn't correct, the computer won't go to the next step. So it actually is a safer system than doing it manually, which is what we've done historically. Gotcha. So even though change can be perceived as risky, what you're showing is actually the whole system is designed to lower the risk. Designed to de-risk. I assume with your buyers that minimizing risk is a key element for them. Yes, absolutely. So think about, I'll, I'll just give you some numbers. If a typical well, and I'm, I'm going to get this wrong, but let's say it's between two and a half million to five million to seven million, eight million dollars, right? To complete one well, there's a lot of risk associated dollar wise, right? On that and the returns associated with that well. One of the things we have to do is talk to our customers about de-risking that and getting rid of some of those costs. Gotcha. Yeah. Fascinating. I'd like to ask people about some, maybe an unusual or different kind of situation that you're in. Is there something that comes to mind when I mention that? Really, one of the things that we're innovating is around trying to do a system that you can fracture 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And when I say fracture, meaning fracture the rock. So today, efficiency, okay, let's just, on a a 24-hour day is, let's say, 16 hours, right, typically, which means that you have... You know, a typical frack fleet, let's say, costs between 25 and $40 million, okay? So that's the capital that you have out on a frack site, right? So so eight hours a day, right, that you're not using it to do its what it's intended to do is not good, right? You're, right, you're just generating. eating that cost. Eating, eating that cost, right? So what we are doing is trying to come up with uh, systems that allow you to better utilize, get greater utilization of your equipment, and so I mentioned one earlier about going from that 45 minutes to that 30 seconds between the, the different zones. The second one is that I would highlight for you is when these frack trucks are out there, right? There's 18 to 20 of these frack trucks out there that are pumps that are pumping that 10,000 PSI down the hole, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But they go down. They last maybe five, six, seven stages or zones, and then they got to pull them out. And typically what you have to do is you have to shut down the whole frack site bleed down all that pressure, pull those out, and then we got to fix all those trucks. What we're working on is being able to actually pull a truck out through automation while the rest of the trucks are pumping. So imagine a system that ha- that can't, you know, we can go in the red zone, have to keep people out of there. You have to be able to unlatch and latch quick connects, right? You have to be able to drain this fluid, bleed off the pressure, and then you have to be able to back a truck back in reattach. So we have arms going out, grabbing couplings, you know, coupling these together, clamping them, getting, and then I'm seeing uh, the world's biggest NASCAR pit. That's That's what I'm envisioning. Yes. Yes. Without the eight people around it. Right. Exactly. Just (laughs) robotic or somehow. Robotic. Yes. Yes. So that's one of the exciting things I think that we're working on right now. Yeah, no, that's amazing. 
Well, Tim, this has been awesome. I feel like I've learned so much about fracking. I didn't even know, you know, it was possible before. And, you know, three miles under and two miles down, that's crazy stuff, man. That's so impressive. Really love hearing about that. I love hearing about the manufacturing in the United States. Definitely a big, big believer in that. And, you know, hopefully we can get more people coming out of school to be interested in pursuing that as a a vocation for sure. Yeah, we love that. I think that's what we need here. But um, no, it's it's been awesome. So I really appreciate your uh, joining me on the podcast. Adam, thank you very much for having me. Really appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. So as a reminder, you can find every episode of the Make It, Move It, Sell It podcast at Spiro.ai backslash podcast. Be sure to subscribe. And I don't know, Tim, maybe people should give us like a thumbs up or a, a like or something like that. What do you think? Absolutely. Good review. Yes. Yes. A good review. We, we need yes. a good review from you, yes. Mr. Listener or Miss Listener. So thank you. Uh, yes. Thank you for that. You know, and of course, you can always subscribe if you like. But uh, I'd like to thank everybody for tuning in. And uh, we look forward to talking with you on the next episode. Yeah.